Up in Alaska, there is a glacier called Exit Glacier. And if you were to look at it, it looks like every other glacier out there, except for the trail leading up to it. Someone took about 200 years of data and they mapped out how much the glacier has retreated or melted away over the last 200 years. And it's over a mile long. That might not seem like much until you start walking the trail and you see where it was 50 years ago and then even 10 years ago. And you come away with this sense of how in the world did this happen? How did this massive structure move or fade away so much? And the answer is one drop at a time for a very long period of time. There was a, a, a slow retreat that, that, that caused this glacier to really be unrecognizable from what it actually was before. And the church we're looking at tonight is a lot like the Exit Glacier. Uh, tonight we're looking at uh, the church within the city of Pergamum. Pergamum's claim to fame is that it was the center of the imperial cult. So if you were here last week, you might remember that the church of Smyrna was suffering for not practicing emperor worship that, uh, that was instituted by the Roman Empire. And Pergamum was the epicenter of that worship. It was the first city to have a temple to a living emperor, and it really was the, the cultural hub for the imperial cult. And so within this political and religious center, we find the church of Pergamum, to whom Jesus is writing a letter in our text. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, this summer we're looking at the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, which has a lot of really weird imagery in which Jesus, through John, is pulling back the curtain and revealing to the churches what's really going on there. And he's functioning kind of like a top-rated reviewer. He's telling them the good, the bad, and what they need to do because of it. And we're looking at these churches to see if we might see ourselves within them. And so tonight we're going to follow the typical reviewer's pattern. We're going to look at what, what is good, what is bad, and what they need to change for the conclusion. So let's start with the good, which we find in verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. It's where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so once again, Jesus starts with his all-knowing statement, I know, right? And then he, he gives three different angles of what he knows, but he's really just emphasizing one thing. He understands and knows that they have held fast in the face of cultural adversity, which sounds like it was pretty intense. Pergamum apparently was like Satan HQ or something. And I want to pause here for a second to flesh that out so that we don't misunderstand what's being said here. Because when you read that, it kind of seems, seems like something from the Hunger Games, right? Like Katniss Everdeen and her posse are sneaking around the city, and President Snow is just looking to like, destroy them or something like that. And so when we read this, we could imagine that the Christians are like this small group of resistance, resistance fighters going from hiding place to hiding place, and Satan is up in his throne room throwing a fit because he can't get a lead on them. And even when he captures one of them, like this Antipas guy, he still can't get anything. And while Satan and his lackeys certainly were opposing the Christians here, uh, we need to be careful not to take it that literal. Um, remember, this is apocalyptic literature, which means it uses fantasy or fantastical imagery to pull back the curtain. And so there is no physical throne. Satan doesn't have a physical dwelling place within the city of Pergamum. 
So to understand what Jesus is getting at, we have to understand more of how Satan works. Tragically, our understanding of Satan uh, really comes from Halloween and horror films, right? That, that's, which just means that basically all Satan wants to do is possess people, which is a very rare thing and impossible for a Christian to experience, which means that Satan's primary goal is not to possess people. He's trying to accomplish something else. And we actually get a glimpse of what that was in, in Genesis chapter 3, that, that Satan tries to do what? He tries to convince Adam and Eve to rebel against God. Satan's goal is, is to stir up and encourage a rebellion against God, to push people to want to define good and evil for themselves. And one of the major ways that they do this is to work behind corrupt power structures, which is what the church of Pergamum was facing that day. There was a system in place that had special authority. You could almost say that a throne was there. It was the imperial cult. And, and so Jesus is simply understanding and acknowledging the fact that because of the emperor worship, they, they're experiencing great pressure to conform, to bow the knee. But they resisted. And Jesus praises them for that. And I think if we, we, we think about bridging the gap between the first century and the 21st century, uh, that's still in play, right? There are still corrupt power structures that push and impress upon the church and Christians to, to mold us into a certain way. And I think the church has done a decent job of standing up to that full frontal assault. But remember, Jesus has more to say than just well done. He has this to say against them in verses 14 and 15. He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now the problem seems straightforward enough, but Jesus assumes that you and I have an understanding of a story that you might not know. It's the story of Balaam and Balak which is found in Numbers chapter 22 and 23. So if you were here in the spring, you might remember when we talked about Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery. Once he led them out of Egypt, he eventually made it to the land of Moab, which was right on the border to the promised land where they were trying to get. To get there, they had to go through Moab, and the king of Moab, a guy named Balak, wasn't too pleased. Him, the Moabites, and the neighboring Midianites saw the Israelites, saw how many there were, and said, yo, they're going to destroy us and take our land. And so they had a great idea. Let's get a prophet to curse the Israelites. And so they reach out to Balaam, who was a prophet for hire. And they ask him to come and curse the Israelites. And eventually Balaam agrees. He comes and he tries to curse the Israelites three times, but God won't let him. Instead, each time he ends up blessing the Israelites. And this obviously makes Balak very angry because he was paying a lot of money for a curse and he got a blessing. And so Balaam comes up with this idea. Rather than a full frontal assault, why don't we try something a little bit sneakier? Balaam suggests that, that they should send the prettiest women they have into the Israelites' camp and to seduce them away from God, to make their idols and their way of life look more appealing than what God had commanded. And in turn, God would end up warring against the Israelites himself. And that is exactly what happened. God ended up having to purge away some of the Israelites because of their rebellion. 
And the reason that's so relevant to the church in Pergamum is because they are facing that exact same situation. See, there's this heretical group called the Nicolaitans that were trying to lure them away by the same means as Balaam and Balak, by using idolatry and immorality. Now, in the story of Balaam, and probably here in Pergamum, it's sexual immorality. But I don't want to pigeonhole us into that narrow of a definition. Immorality, at its heart, is just going against God's instructions and his order for things. And any immorality committed is always a result of idolatry. And that might seem ridiculous in our modern context. Sure, maybe that made sense back in the first century where there were statues and idols everywhere, but now in the postmodern world, that doesn't make much sense. And that's because we have misunderstood what an idol is. An idol is anything that is more fundamental to our happiness, our meaning in life, and identity than God. So, so take anything, money, uh, approval of your classmates, your GPA, whatever. If that thing is more fundamental to your happiness, meaning, life, and identity, that's your idol. And your idol will cause you to do horrible things to keep it propped up. And so just look at your life. Where are those areas of sin, of immorality, that you just can't seem to beat? They keep lingering. The reason you can't get rid of them is because they are attached or rooted to an idol. They're always connected. And the longer you keep that idol, the farther it will move you away from God, just like the exit glacier, slowly over a period of time. And what I've noticed in my own life and in the lives of churches I've served in is that, that idols are far more effective at neutralizing a church than a full frontal assault from outside. And because God loves you and his church, he's not going to let that happen. And so Jesus gives some concluding remarks to the church in Pergamum about what they should do about their situation. He says in, verses six, in verse 16, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against you them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, don't get caught up on the sword mouth thing. Catch the command. They are to repent. They're to get rid of their idols. God wants them to cut out the cancer in their midst, or he was going to come with his double-edged sword and do it himself. Which, on all, all he's asking for is for us to repent of our idols, which means to, to turn away. It's a 180 degrees from loving something to hating it. But how exactly are we supposed to repent? Are we just supposed to say, God, I'm really sorry I have an idol. I'll try better next time. Obviously, it has to be more specific than that. When we repent of our idols, we need to recognize how weak they are. That, that whatever thing we are idolizing isn't as grand and as powerful as we think it is. It has made promises to you that it can't deliver on. And we also have to recognize how dangerous it is to us. I was talking with someone recently uh, about this, explain how idols work, and, and, and upon reflection, they said that they thought their idol was the approval of people. And I asked them, so how does that play out in your life? And they told me that they felt that they could never actually be themselves because they weren't sure if themselves would be liked. How devastating is that? The, the, they are unable to be who God desires and made them to be because of their idol. It's dehumanizing them. It makes them less than what God intended. We have to understand how weak they are 
We have to understand how dangerous they are. We have to take the sword and cut them out. But this alone is not enough. It's not enough to just remove it, to denounce the things that the world is offering us. We also have to rejoice in Jesus and what he's purchased for us. That's the point of the closing verse in in, uh, verse 17. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Two examples. Both are saying the same thing. The, the manna one takes a while to explain. If you're curious, talk to me later. I'll explain it. The white stone is a sports metaphor, okay? So once you won a race, you got the pot, the prize, right? And within that pot would be a white stone. And that white stone was your meal ticket. It was the entrance into the after party. And so if you had that stone you're not going to the the local party. You're going to the big deal, the real thing, because you have the ticket. That's Jesus' point here. You have the white stone. (laughs) He's the white stone. You have the best that there is. Don't trade it in for something less than. And the way that, that we, and so rather than just repent, we also have to rejoice in what we have. And we do that by by beholding it, by by looking deeply at it, by seeing that Christ has done more for us, gone farther for us, has given us more than anything else in the world could. And so as we close up this letter for tonight, I just want you to think about what thing in your life is eroding your convictions and affections to Christ. It's probably not a full frontal assault. You might be standing quite well on the outside, but inside, something has crept into your heart. Something is trying to usurp God for your affections. And can I invite you to look to Jesus and let him show you the folly and failure of your idols and his surpassing greatness and love for you?